welcome to From the Library with Love, a podcast for anyone whose life has been changed by reading. So many readers have got in touch with me since reading the Little Wartime Library to tell me how much they enjoyed reading about libraries in wartime, a facet of history many of us know very little about. So when I began to research the book, I realised I knew woefully little about the history of librarianship, if if perhaps virtually nothing. So I was lucky enough to stumble upon Anne Welsh. Anne has been a librarian for a quarter of a century, mostly working in small special libraries. Although she has held other roles as a deputy librarian, library manager and as an academic, cataloguing is her abiding passion. The way people make, share and interact with books fascinates her. She also has a brain bursting with knowledge about the history of librarianship and was kind enough to allow me to pick those copious brains. Welcome, Anne. (laughs) Very embarrassed. (laughs) No, you were great. You were you were sort of a research gold for me. I was at that point where I was really flailing about thinking, God, I actually know anything and I need somebody to really put it to me in layman's terms. So on that subject, I'm going to launch straight in with my first question, Anne. What is cataloguing? Because you run your own cataloguing company. What does it mean to the the person on the street? So cataloguing, I always say to people, is a hidden activity that you see the products of all the time. Anytime you search any database, not just in libraries, somebody has had to input that data. And in order to come up with that data, they've had to think about what information is recorded. So I have a couple of books here um, that I might quote from later. And for example, here I've got Broken Pieces, A Library Life by Michael Gorman. And if you, I remember recommending this book to you. And when you went to look for it, I'm sure you went to a library catalogue and stuck in Gorman's quite an unusual name. So if you put in Michael Gorman, this would come up. If it came up with lots of these, you know, wonderful articles about cataloguing, you would be able to put in and narrow it down by Broken Pieces, which is quite a distinctive title. And in order for you to be able to do that activity to find the book somebody somewhere in a library supplier or in the library itself has input that data to the catalogue so cataloguing in layman's terms is describing in the library sense a book so that somebody can find it I think it's really lovely to have somebody demystifying these terms because sometimes I feel like we all pretend we know what they are when actually reality we don't I was talking to a friend the other day about the stacks and she was nodding away when I was working out what to call this podcast one of the ideas I had was secrets of the stacks and she said I like it Mm. but I have no idea what stacks are what are stacks stacks are literally the place where books are kept and that can cover everything usually we talk about stacks as the behind the scenes space so I happen to be sitting because I'm a librarian I always have too many books hashtag not all librarians some of them are very minimalist but most of us have too many books and so in this room I have lots of books that are on display and most libraries will have a section where the books are on display but if you talk about going into stacks it could be books on display like in the London library they boast about how many meters of stacks they've got and there's an area of the London Library that's even called the back stacks so as a library user 
you get told, oh, that's in the back stacks and then directed where it is. So there's often an idea that it's a little bit behind the scenes, but it's 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 basically the place where the books live right. and sometimes used in contrast with the open shelves. So that's a really common thing. And that's why you as a journalist and a researcher would find that a commonplace term because perhaps unknowingly you'll have been told years ago well that's on the open shelves if you want that you'll need to request it from the stacks so come back and see me and you'll have absorbed the meaning through osmosis whereas I'm guessing your friend isn't somebody who's doing a lot of research so he or she goes into the library and finds what they want and comes out again so people who aren't us Kate can go their entire lives and never need access to something that's in the hidden away section of the library, but still use the library quite happy because yeah. they're a happy borrower. Yeah, a happy borrower. I like that phrase as well. And so on the, ne- the next sort of logical question then is what is, and I think most people probably have an inkling of this, what shelving is. Yeah, so literally anything can be a bookshelf. If you've got two bricks and put a plank of wood across it and stacked books on top of it, that you could call that a bookshelf. And if you have it in vast quantities, you talk about it as shelving. And we don't talk about shelving any differently in libraries as we would in a house. You know, if, if I have a mate who's a builder and he, if he was going to put shelving in somebody's house or in somebody's garage or in Ikea, you know, where they talk about shelving, it's just exactly the yeah. same thing. Uh, the only difference with libraries um, that mystifies people is they can be very obsessed with how tall the shelves are because as books expand or as, as runs of books expand, you need to be able to move them about. So you always have to record the height of the books and it makes it easier uh, for when you have to do okay. a bit of planning. To okay. know it's no good if you've got, if I had shelves that were half the height that they are at the moment. So most of my shelves are set to either 30 or 28 centimetres. Uh, because I'm a librarian most people think a paperback is about 21 centimeters they get in their stuff from Ikea set the shelves at 21 centimeters and are amazed at the paperback it's like oh <laughs> trying to squeeze and rip their paperbacks to get in don't get your library shelves from Ikea is the, is the moral yes well no they're brilliant honestly all of my shelves I think I've got some very fancy pants shelves that are not from Ikea most <laughs> of my things just live on Ikea shelves they're adjustable great i love it okay (laughs) what is and i know people will have heard of this but again it might need a bit of demystifying the dewey decimal system now this is i always think this is a really interesting thing people above a certain age the minute you say you're a librarian never mind a cataloger they talk about dewey and that's because Melville Dewey was an American librarian in the 19th century, and he came up with a system of dividing the world of knowledge by 10. And he came up with the Dewey Decimal Classification System. It's decimal because he divided the world of knowledge by 10. And his idea was that if you went into any library that had that system, you would know where to go. So if you were interested in a particular topic, it would always live in the same place in the number sequence. And that in itself sounds brilliant, but where it falls apart is the world of knowledge can't really be divided by 10. You know, it's worse than when Britain changed its monetary system and, you know, when people go on holiday to America, they're like, oh, I thought I was using kilometres back home, but we always talk about miles for driving. Then you go to America and everything's in kilometres. Oh, my goodness. 
So it's a, it's a similar sort of thing. So over the years, libraries have pulled back, certainly in the UK, libraries have pulled back from that being the standard way of shelving. And especially because for most people, what they're borrowing from the library is fiction. So over time, if you go to someplace like an idea store or like my local library where I am in Havering, they have their non-fiction books are largely in a rough sort of Dewey Decimal order. But they're fiction books in the branch that I use. It's just an alphabetical run. Oh, apart really? from the Because fiction's exploded so much, you can't. And in the, yeah, and in the, the main branch library in Romford, it's what they call bookshelf shelving. So that's where you've got like a label that says on the side CRI for crime or SCI for science fiction. So if it's a big library, they'll tend to copy more of what the bookshops do. Because for happy borrowers, that's really what you want you know when i go into i i because i do a lot of non-fiction writing i'll quite often call things into the library so i don't need to browse a shelf i don't need mr dewey and committees that have followed him to tell me where to go in the library because i go to the desk and the lovely librarian goes oh hello what are you in for this week and passes me the thing that's shelved by my name because i've ordered it and most of the people where I live as public library users who do non-fiction as their main thing, that's how they experience it. Now, we're going to delve right in, if that's all right, into the history of the profession, yeah, if sure. we may. And I speaking to you was a huge part of my kind of education at that, if you like. Also going to the British Library and pulling out back copies of the British um I think it was the British Library Record or the Library Association at that time had a yeah, had a various catalogues. And one of the biggest surprises to me, I suppose, was the way that libraries boomed in wartime. I read this quote at the outset of the Second World War, the president of the Library Association, the very grandly named, I think I'm pronouncing this right, Arundel Estale, wrote, <laughs> patriotism is not enough. The right reading of books is one of the chief ways of maintaining and even enlarging the culture of the mind which knows no frontiers and after all it is not on behalf of that culture that we're fighting to destroy the new barbarism and I think we can see from that the rhetoric was quite clear that books were the key sort of weapon in the fight for morale and mm -hmm. I gathered from that as well that the Ministry of Information was very quick to cotton on to that and enlisted the help of public libraries and every library in the land was urged to set up information bureaus and embed themselves firmly in the life of, of the community as well as open their doors to evacuees and, and soldiers. So two questions really to that, Anna. How do you think librarians rose to that challenge and how do you think you would have reacted had you been a librarian in World War II? I'll answer that in reverse order. Um, okay, yeah. I don't not? think I would have got to be a librarian in World oh, War II okay. because I would say classism is something that has been a real problem in oh, the profession okay. it was always very much a middle class profession and anybody who's Scottish and listening will probably be able to detect that I am not a middle from a middle class background I already said my dad was an electrician my granddad was a coal miner on one side and a pavier on the other and my the reason I don't think I'd get to be a librarian is because my granny really really wanted to be a librarian but she had to leave school, as everybody did in those days, at 14. And although she always came top in the class every year, she had to leave and she initially went into domestic service and then became right. a laundry maid and a homestress. And even the person who did become the librarian in her local area had been at school with my granny and grandpa 
and was always always treated us very well because they were always very embarrassed because they recorded they self-confessed as oh i was one of the thickies in class and your your grandpa had to go down the mines and jenny my gran had to go and become a servant to somebody and i was like yeah that them them's the breaks so i very viscerally feel that women like me and even men like me if my grandpa had wanted to be a librarian we wouldn't have got to do it so so that that's an easy one for me to answer i don't think i would have been i think i would have been one of the the girls that volunteered for the navy life in world war ii would you have done and i think I think my talent for for organising would have seen me when I actually grew up in Largs. I think I would have ended up as a wages clerk or on the comms desk at either what we knew as the Moorings Cafe was requisitioned by the Navy in World War Two, and became where one part of the naval wages were done. And when people went missing, they were marked as at that particular naval base. And there were two other naval bases at which Rennes were based. And a lot of them, they came from all over the country. And there was a real mixture of class. So I think World War Two for people like me, the opportunity would have been yeah. to sign up and enlist. And as a Ren, you were unlikely to have to see warfare. Yeah. I wouldn't have had the, the, the ability and the empathy and the skills to, to volunteer as an auxiliary nurse. But I think I would have probably been, a, if I was lucky, a shop girl, and I would have gone, I'm going to sign up for the reins. And I would have set all of the tests that they gave yeah. to people and the competence for organising stuff would have put me, I wouldn't have been allowed, I don't think as a reign, it was always male storekeepers as far as I know. But I think that's what I would have done. So that's an easy so, one for me to That's answer. so interesting that you would have, that you've identified that and that actually you're probably right it probably would have been a springboard for you as it was for so many women out of drudgery and into opportunities that they wouldn't have previously been afforded you know like uh, what other point in history could a scullery maid become a wren you know and mix yeah. with people from all different backgrounds so that's fascinating that a you wouldn't even probably have got to be that librarian but you could have found your lives elevated in in other ways yeah. Yeah, And then I would have campaigned in 1946, legislation came in, as you know, for uh, the government to, you know, Homes for Heroes was one part of it, but also they wanted to provide jobs for heroes. So men who were being discharged from the Navy and the other armed forces had the opportunity to apply to the government for a grant to train in various things and one of those was librarianship so I think if I had a real passion for librarianship I would have probably known my granny if my granny had been single during World War Two, I'm sure this is the route she would have taken but she had, three, she had two kids and one on the way just after the war so she couldn't sign up for anything um, but I think if I'd been single I would have done the, the rain bit and then when I saw that the blokes that I'd been literally working alongside had the opportunity to do this I would have been on to the local MP saying come on mate you know homes for heroes i helped win the war too nobody would have got paid nobody would have got the ration books sorted yeah, yeah. it wasn't for us meetings, you know and i would have hoped at that point to get one of the grants and in 1946 to have gone and trained as a librarian at that point and there's there are women who they were kind of paid off i don't think the government actually said well here's an official grant but somehow there are women i've i have met women they were they were in active service usually as a rain showed a competence and managed to get usually private funding from the local mp to and i'm sure it's because they were pestering so that's what i would have done in world war ii i think 
or I would just have hidden under my bed and cried a lot because I honestly don't know how that generation got through what they got. We could never know what we would have done. I think knowing you, Anne, you would have been out there fighting fighting protesting knowing all the things that you've said you would have absolutely and probably more besides <laughs> the librarians who did make it i think how they rose to the challenge was really really interesting to me because libraries at that time there was already women in libraries at that time and um, the the route in for most middle class girls to become a librarian was when the new qualification uh, opened up at what was then the University of London. They could go and do a diploma in librarianship, and that got them the route into libraries. Often not directly into public libraries. A lot of them were working in special libraries, and then when the war came, they moved across. A lot of children's librarians who were women. You can see the dates for children's librarianship really is important around that. First World War, you know, and then into the 20s is an explosion of women who come into librarianship as children's librarians. Um, so I think the, the way that you portrayed it in the book was actually mostly very accurate with a bit of wish fulfillment. So I feel that the character who had done her qualification and then gone into libraries was just, yeah, there were lots of women that had been there that had been their room. Yeah. They wouldn't have got in as a library boy, which was an official job title for was a library. Really? God, <laughs> they were not a library, you know, so they were really sending the signal with that job title. Qualified boys, you know, and you, most of them went in at fourteen in that in those days to, to be a library boy, and then worked their way up. So the qualification coming in in the nineteen twenties was fantastic for women yeah. to become qualified librarians, as in your book. And I think the wish fulfillment part was the working class characters roundabout yeah. who were able yeah. to to get in. But I think it's believable wish fulfillment because I think statistically, it's not so likely but that's not to say there wouldn't have been one or yeah. two and there were I think, definitely I think aspirational working class from that sort of background and family pushing you her clara going to spitalfields foundation grammar school enabled her to to kind of elevate herself out of her position but yeah you're right there was an element of a kind of wish fulfillment about that i thought but, it was brilliant i loved that about it when you sent me when you sent me through the book I was, oh my goodness this is fantastic <laughs> i just loved it because if you'd been i think if you'd been too sticking to what would definitely have happened it wouldn't have made such a good read no she never would have got herself into that library she would never have been as audacious and aspirational as she was so I kind of needed to have her that way in order for the for the narrative to to progress I suppose one of the things I, I came across was another again more quotes I love these quotes that you find in old you know historical archives but there was a man called John Hilton. He was the director of home publicity. And, and he wrote, books in wartime can be a refuge into which we make our way to escape the slings and arrows of outrageous conflict. Books can be a storehouse from which to draw sure knowledge and rich emotion to clarify our minds and strengthen our souls for the task to which we have set our hand. I mean, obviously, he was director of home publicity, you know, he was PR spin master, wasn't he? It's very colourful prose. How do you think the average, if such a thing exists, average librarian felt about that? Well, when you look, you've seen it yourself, when you look at the Library Association record and the, the letters being written in, some of them absolutely loved this. And, you know, they, they felt, this is fantastic. We're doing our bit for king and country. But then others were just kind of like, oh, come on. You know, we're librarians. What we do is we help the people around us to find what they want. You know, so I think it was probably quite mixed 
And I think it probably depended where you lived, what your particular librarian was like. So I think it really would depend on the individual. But mm-hmm. I think in terms of how I think I've always seen this as something that is more aimed at the local councils, because, of course, the Libraries Act has always, of 1851, when it came in, it stipulated that the management of libraries resided with the councils. So it's local government, not national government. So when I've seen these kind of statements, especially when it's something like this, I think that's him and his department reminding the town councillors libraries are important because I think the librarians would know that and certainly the local uh, populace. My, my, when I think of people like my my entire family pulled itself up by its bootstraps thanks to local libraries, they knew how important they were. But this layer of, you know, the guys who, who had fought in the first war and weren't called up for the second because they were too old, you know, the, the kind of posh blokes who for some reason hadn't been allowed to go and become a colonel someplace, who were at that time when all of the actual active men are off trying to defend Britain, the people who were sitting in, in that local government were not our best first choice a lot of the time. No offence to them, because a lot of them did fantastic jobs. So I often think with this, that's a message to them. Don't forget you have this fantastic resource. Yeah, yeah. And I think probably made, I, I would imagine, I've certainly seen, and you will have too, I'm sure, archives where people are quoting, librarians are saying to the town council, look, I know it's really important that we, you know, shore up the sea defences a bit, but at the moment, we're not being told that Hitler's invading anytime soon. I think if we just had a bigger book buying budget, we could do more for the children yeah. in the town or, you know, we could get in some stuff that will help the local scouts to learn how to shore up the defences or whatever it is. So I always think this is a, a, a middle class man talking to the middle class people that are sitting right. in local government area saying this is important. Yeah. And when you mention that middle class sort of governmental level, and I'm probably skipping forward a question here, but it kind of reminds me of the character that I based Pinkerton Smythe on, who was somebody who found himself in that position, who didn't understand the library system, who looked down upon, especially the, as he saw them, the fluffy children's librarians who'd found themselves elevated up. And one of the things I, I suppose, the information that I digested from all these different sources was, um, you know, how long the list of Blitz libra- libraries was, you know, quite a depressingly long one, I think, Mm-hmm. I don't know where they get this figure from, but an estimated 750,000 library books were destroyed during the bombardment mm-hmm. and librarians were there very much in the thick of it, helping to salvage books as well as rehousing the homeless. They adapted to wartime conditions, opening for record hours. For the first time ever, branches opened on Sundays mm-hmm. to allow factory workers to change their books as well as, of course, you know, libraries popping up on underground tracks and mobile libraries launching and you know all these incredible librarians reacting with such agility and creativity and therefore who better to deal with those emergencies with compassion and empathy than female librarians and it was you and who introduced me to that phrase the placeholder which really struck me and and thought god what a thing to be to be called at what did can you explain what that means and why it was yeah. sort of relevant to to characters and librarians like clara 
Yes, I'm going to turn to Michael Gorman's uh, book because um, he, so Michael Gorman was born in 1941. So his recollections of during the war are quite scant, as you would imagine. But he became a librarian. He started as a library assistant, I believe, in uh, 1957. Um, and if I can just find the right quotation. Um, he, so when he started, he's coming in just after the war. And as I said, when the when people were demobbed, they were given an opportunity uh, to apply for a government grant to retrain. And so a lot of men, so a lot of working class men came back from the war and became librarians. And that's when librarianship became less predominantly middle class because we suddenly had these blokes coming back, ordinary soldiers, ordinary naval workers coming back. They applied, they were clever enough. They got the grant in 1946. They went off into the, in the London area, it was the Polytechnic of North London. They went there, they did their qualification, they came out for them. They really did do that. That was their step up. And right. so they got the rewards that the, the government wanted them to have. And in the background to that, what you had when Michael Gorman started was a lot of men who felt going to war had been the making of them, like those men I've just mentioned. They also had a lot of women who, as you said, had stepped up from the position of children's librarian, occupied what was the librarian in charge, chief librarian, as the title would have been in those days, role, and then were asked, oh, the chief librarian has survived the war and has come back. You're back to being children's librarian again. And also the kind of forgotten part in this matrix are the men who weren't fit to serve. And Gorman has a quote here, um, which he's actually talking about a, a character from First World War who was still in service. And you know, this was something until I read his Gorman's book, I hadn't even thought, of course, those men who, who'd served in World War One were still of working age. So he's talking about um, his first days in his own first days in the library. And he said, he's talking about a chap called Ernie Knowles, who was the deputy borough librarian in Hampstead Central Library in the 1950s. And Gorman says, Knowles had joined Hampstead Library in 1911. And unlike the other young men who worked there at the same time, did not enlist in the armed forces as the country was swept with war fever in 1914. Brackets, it may be that he had some condition that precluded military service. This was bitterly resented by those who served and survived because they came back to their entry-level jobs while he had advanced into the library's administration. That bitterness was often expressed to me by the otherwise cheery Mr Jones, with whom I worked later in the Kilburn branch library 40 and more years after the Great War had ended. And that speaks to exactly why the government, having learned from what had happened to the likes of poor old Ernie Knowles or lucky Ernie Knowles, depending on your perspective. They wanted to avoid that, which is why they offered people this chance. But the men still came back. And for those of them who, who, who were sitting at a decent level, the women or the other people who had not gone to war were kind of shoved into a lesser position. So they literally were keeping the place. God, it's such a complex issue and it's interesting to view it through the gaze of librarianship because obviously it was that was happening on a wider level in every profession and industry in England mm -hmm. after the war. You know, it wasn't just librarians, yes. was it? It was everybody, that all these women that stepped up and out of the home and into the workplace and found autonomy and agency and discovered themselves were then afterwards having to step back. But I was also intrigued at 
the attitudes about women and what they were reading, not just what they were doing in war, but what they were reading. And I came across this in the Library Association record in 1942. Hilda McGill from Manchester Public Library wrote of the surge of housewives who find themselves with more time on their hands as their husbands are away serving and end up in the public library. And she wrote, at 18, she probably read the light novels of the day. As literacy has increased, so has the standard of light reading depressed itself to something approaching imbecility. But she concedes it's better to read a light novel than skim the pages of an illustrated paper on the basis that even the most foolish book is a kind of leaky boat on a sea of wisdom. Some of the wisdom will get in anyhow, which I found quite hard to stomach because, A, it's coming from a woman. But then that was also, I also, in the same day of research, I also came across another quote. I can't even remember the male librarian's name. But he said, if women should have enough energy to read anything but trash, we should be doing them a real service if we prevented them from reading. So it's kind of hard, isn't it, to read that sort of attitude towards women. Have I just picked out unfairly, do you think, two particularly sort of condescending comments towards women, or was it more deeply entrenched, do you think? Well, I think that the important thing to say is it was ever thus. I mean, in Jane Austen's period, <laughs> you, that's why she wrote I love that phrase, Rappi, by the way. Wasn't it? Well, it was ever thus. It was ever thus, <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, that's why, or as far as we know about Austen's intentions, that's partly why she wrote Northanger Abbey, is because her fiction was being held up as, well, it is a novel, but it is quite good. You know, Walter Scott is a novel, but it is quite good for you. And Jane Austen herself, we know, read voraciously, and she apparently loved, you can see from the correspondence with Cassandra, she loved a good old bodice ripper. Um, so Northanger Abbey being in the Gothic style, and you can look at the reviews that came out then, and people were scandalised because this time it was known that it was Miss Austen. It wasn't a man who was writing. And they were scandalised you know, that Miss Austen was kind of familiar with this and even adding to this, this genre. So I think there's always been a fear and it always seems to have been connected to the fact that it's regarded that it's largely the women that are educating the children. So, and I think some of it is related okay. to this kind of this level of control. And it is true. I mean, growing up in a household where there are books makes you more likely to want to read yourself. And obviously, if the book you pick up is is, is a good book, the, the, the kind of instinctive thing for adults to think is, oh, you, you're going to read better fiction. All the research that's ever been done shows just reading is the thing. It doesn't matter if you read the back of the sauce bottle and the cornflakes packet. It doesn't matter, you know, God forbid, but if you're reading, you know, your, your dad's soft porn, it doesn't matter. Just reading from a young age is what makes you literate because it allows you to read you know, make your own selections and choose. So this attitude in World War Two, I don't think was different from in World War One or in the period before. There seemed to be more people speaking out about it whenever the men are away. So mm-hmm. I think as well as this aspect of control. So not only did women have more time, but I mean, unless like my granny, you know, you were married to a minor, the minors were categorically not allowed to sign up. Their job was to be down digging and literally did 12 hour shifts during World War Two. So they were not allowed to sign up. So the miners' wives still had their husbands there, but they were down the pit for 12 hours rather than, <laughs> rather than 10 hours during World War II to keep the nation and, and all the warships and everything fueled. 
So most women were off the hook. They didn't have their bloke there to say, what's the reason, darling, and supervise them. So I think there's this fear of if you can't control your wife, and you, you know, then you're not controlling your children. You're not seeing children growing up. But I'm not trying to say it's okay, but I do think that, that we see these peaks. You know, in Austin's time, of course, they were at war then, weren't they? So a yeah, lot of the yeah, little yeah. classes, the men were off, you know, commandeering naval vessels, and the women were at home reading goodness knows what of these novels to the to the young children growing up. But again, turning back to Gorman, and I'd forgotten he said this. You introduced me to Forever Amber, and I'd completely forgotten. <laughs> That's that my gift to you. Was in here was, was a, what a gift it was. I learned so much, Kate. I really did. <laughs> I was such a Presbyterian that it really was an eye opener. So, obviously, by 1957, Michael Gorman doesn't consider Forever Amber that racy, but we know from everything that we've seen written about Forever Amber when it first yeah. came out. Now, the time it was the, the must-read novel for lots of, of women of all different classes, you know, whose men were away yeah. to keep them going. Yeah, and isn't that interesting that by that period it wasn't considered quite so inflammatory and yet when it was released, I think it was released in America in just after the war, actually, 1945, they were burning it on the streets of Boston and it was banned. And, I mean, I know I used a bit of creative licence to bring it into the, yeah. the tunnels in the war years, but because to me it seems so reflective the sort of book that in a way women would have just devoured and you can understand why you know there's this ruthless scheming character who sort of romps her way through the ruins of restoration london she's irrepressible isn't she and she was sort of holding a mirror up to the way some women were behaving in real life albeit with more sensation and i also like the fact that i wonder if in world war ii women were reading this book with very vivid scenes set during the great fire of london and the plague and life was catastrophic but that that the country somehow survived and so too this shall pass that there was some element of perhaps reassurance in looking back at the past and historical fiction because it certainly was a very popular genre during the second world war oh my goodness yeah i think so i think gone with the wind i think was one of the most read library books by 1943 and i suppose you can you can kind of understand that can't you when you know life's not not just frightening, but also boring and grey and bleak and full of powdered egg and drudgery. I mean, I know I'd want to pick up a racy book and escape into it. Do you think, would you yeah, agree? Definitely. My my granddad on my dad's side was allowed to sign up. And so he, he was a sapper during the war and ended up in a prisoner of war camp for a number of years. And when he came back, he had been engaged to my gran, who I never met. She died the same a fortnight after I was born, so I never met her. But she's legend in our family. She's from a big <laughs> Glasgow family of really, you know, feisty women. What was her name? She she was called Mary, Mary Welsh. Lots of Marys in my family, and she was one of them. And she um so she had obviously devoured mostly she was she was a bookbinder by trade which is another story that a woman got to be a bookbinder but she was a bookbinder and she worked at Collins's um in Glasgow and then during the war she was pulled off on war duty and she worked in a munitions factory and because she'd been a forewoman at Collins's she was a forewoman in the munitions factory and so one of the big stories um, in my family uh, oral history is that when the men were coming home they knew when the last trip train would be arriving in Glasgow and my granny had to say to the girls as they got the word that their man was home she was the one that had to say yes you can go and meet him and she knew that she hadn't heard that Davy was home on this particular train Davy probably wasn't coming home 
and she ended up with the other sad women who finished their normal working day at five o'clock. She got home to her mother's house where she lived and who's sitting at the table cutting all the fat off the piece of, of bacon that her mother had had to bribe somebody probably to get for him but said Davy because he'd come home on the trip chain and thought well Mary will still be at her work I'll just go around to her mother's house and wait for um, her he had no idea and she said in a way she's furious but in another way she thought well not changed then after all these years but one of the things that he did was when he'd gone to war, she'd been this very bright woman who only read the classics because obviously she Collinses were binding all the classics. So he came back and when he was waiting for her to come back, he said he had a look at the books and he thought, well, Mary will not have read that. and Mary will not have read that. And so he read a lot of the books that, you know, not on that specific day, but he made his job because he thought we've been apart for so long. I'm going to read what you've been reading. And he said he thought, gosh, her taste really changed. And Gone With The Wind was just, he thought, I cannot believe, did you read this passage, Mary? What, I can't believe it. And then when they went to see the movie, he just could not believe it. And he was like, really? you would not give that Rhett Butler house room. You married me, the woman you left Rhett Butler like. You know, I love like, that. Hey. I love that image of your grandmother Mary. <laughs> While he's away, sitting there in the you know by the firelight with a with the wind, it's just. But what I mean, wouldn't you though, as a woman, want just devour books like that? Because, you know, books are escapism, aren't they? They're solace and sanctuary, and you know, we we want to be taken out of our world and transported into another. So, Definitely. good honor for reading it. Yeah, it's so fascinating, isn't it? Reading again, and if you go to the the mass observation survey, they did a fantastic survey called Books and the Public. I think it was in the spring of 1942. They surveyed oh. 10,000 women about their reading habits. And it was just such an eye-opener, not just for the thoughts and feelings of women whose opinions would ordinarily be lost to history, but just the way that they spoke and the way that they talked about their relationship with reading. I think one woman said, oh, when I'm knitting, I can't, in my head, I can still hear the bombs and I can still, I'm still attuned. But when I'm lost in a good book real life falls away and I thought it really got me thinking about what reading gave women in wartime and that brief you know to press pause on that lonely churn of your own thoughts and how what a relief that must have been because there was no phones and you know going to the theatre or the cinema was the the pictures was a treat and not always accessible in in during a raid so god it must have been a an incredible um resource for women all over all classes all backgrounds Definitely. The equivalent of watching a, you know, binge watching a box set. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Now I've got gone off on a bit of a tangent there. Um, one okay. of the questions I wanted to ask, because we've we're talking a lot around men's attitudes and misogyny and so forth. Maybe we need to delve back into the founding of the public library to understand people's attitudes towards women and reading. Can you tell us um, when did the first public library open and why? So there's a split here between Scotland and the rest of the UK. So Scotland, through the Sunday school movement, was always much more uh, literate than the rest of the UK. Uh -huh. um, so for England and Wales, the Public Libraries Act was passed in 1851. And there were some uh, libraries that were already in existence. So a really nice one is in Canterbury. The local uh, sort of bigwigs in Canterbury had already been getting the funds together to found a library. 
and they'd got the money together. The building was half rebuilt. The they were also some of the men who were involved in getting the Public Libraries Act through. And so they had a nice new, ready-built, almost complete library. So Canterbury was one of the first that you could say opened under the Public Libraries Act. Oh. But that was because they had a little bit of a run up to it. Because if the Public Libraries Act had failed, they, the, the good townspeople of Canterbury were going to open this library anyway. So I think that's what causes a bit of confusion for people because you've got this big bang date that the Act was passed, but then you do find libraries across England and Wales, and even more in Scotland, where they had existed before oh, that particular okay. date. So that's why it's hard to get a, a defined answer as, as to that. So, the bill, so then you've got a bit of a gap, because the towns where the local government hadn't been bothered about the literacy rate of their populace, it took about three years. So there's a massive explosion um, mm. in about 1853, 1854. We suddenly see lots and lots of purpose-built public libraries sort of coming into existence. And obviously Alistair Black, Professor Alistair Black, who you know very well, is the person to talk to about that. And I would have to turn, I don't even know, if, I think I've probably got his book sitting here, but I would definitely have to turn to that. And I would say whatever he, he has said will yeah. be right. I think for people listening, the reason why it can sound quite confusing is because you can think, well, in our town, we've had a we've had a public library since the 1700s, and what will have happened there is you'll have had a private library, a private group of individuals who want to allow the citizenry to read. Yes. Or set yeah. something up. And then they'll have seen the new act come in and either straight away or once they've seen that it's bedded in well, they'll have gone, right, I will pass this on to the local right. council. When it first came in, the benefit of being a council library, so a public library in the sense of being council run yeah. in the early years was great. A bit like the NHS, there were doctor surgeries who came into the NHS as soon as the NHS opened and then there were doctor surgeries right. who came in a bit later and in the founding years it was a boom time and it was marvellous and then over time as happens with all public services they start to get a bit taken for granted yeah. and a bit tarnished and it's not so good. I'm so glad you explained that because when I was over in Jersey researching the Wartime Book Club which is the companion book oh, to the yeah. Wartime Library I discovered St Helier Public Library had been going since something like 17... 40 or thereabouts something like that and I remember thinking oh that predates Manchester but I think it's that word private it was a private library which then yeah. later became a public library so that makes more sense to me now as to why yeah. that, that was I um, think if you think about it in terms of council run yeah because you could be a public library like the first public library I think in the UK was in a small town in Scotland which was a mining village like Hills I can't remember the data foundation, mm. but I think I'm right in saying that's here. It's public library in the sense that you didn't have to be a particular kind of person to use it. You could go in and you could use that library. So public in that sense, rather than an academic library where you have to be studying at that university or have a letter of introduction. Generally, in colloquial terms, we say public library to mean council run. Okay, um, that makes sense. That's, that's the distinction. And we talk about the decline of libraries. We're only really talking in this country about the decline of council-run libraries. So the handing over of libraries to volunteers is handing it back to what it was before. And oh. that will not be a good thing, but it will be, it's, it's a return to you know, the sea closing yeah. over, the wonderful eruption of councils so, that actually care about yeah. education of the populace. 
It's so interesting to see the ebb and the flow and the evolution of libraries and how they've changed and reacted and which leads me kind of to my next question that going back to the the war years how much do you think the blitz and this concept of reading for victory which i know wasn't an official propaganda kind of slogan changed the library service do you think um alistair who you mentioned earlier he said to me that in america librarians had for decades been much more relaxed about giving people what they wanted he said in britain it was not until the second world war that the trend towards accepting the lending of fiction as a legitimate function of the public library quickened, you know, he felt brought about by this um, acceptance during the, during the blitz to give women what they wanted to give them the fiction that they needed to keep their morale up. Would you agree with that? Do you think it kind of changed things dramatically? I would say so. And I would go further than that. And I would say it's the presence of, of women as, as readers in the public library. And I know, again, I keep going back to my own family, but they're just so typical, like just a typical. No, it's great. Family. And it makes a human yeah. side of it. I like it when you do that. And they were from like, so one of them was from a mining village and the other part of my family was from a, a bigger town. And so, but their experience of libraries as you know, both my grands and my, my granddad's uh, sisters, he had many, many sisters. Their experience, I think, was just really typical, certainly very rare. And anytime I talk to other working class people, they've always got grannies and great aunts who are exactly the same. Basically, the sheer labour that working class women had to put in just to do the laundry, just to do the ironing, just to cook the dinner. Most of them didn't have refrigeration in the house, so they had to go shopping every day. The amount of work that they had to do and the timing of it, I mean, the thing that both of my grands really had, so my grand, one grand wasn't married, she was living at home with her mum, and the other one was married when war hit. And for a start, my grandpa, who was in the pit, was down the pit longer. My granny, when she waved goodbye to him in the morning, not knowing if he would come home, because they were on the bit where the, the, the Luftwaffe would drop the bombs that they hadn't spent in Glasgow. Oh, yeah. So she'd say goodbye to him. So the horror thing was she had it easy because her man was there every night, but he might every day he might never come home because if they dropped a load, yeah. that was the pit gone. Um, so, but he was gone for a longer chunk of time. So my granny on that side was an inveterate reader. She used to call it her um, incipient sin. And, you know, she, she was an inveterate reader. So she'd really? get all her work done in the same time that she had pre-war. And then her man wasn't in. And the same with my other granny. She had been given many more household tasks to do by her mum pre-war. But because Mary and a couple of the other girls were doing their bit for the war effort, her mum didn't give her as many tasks to do when she got home because she'd be tired. You know, rather than just humping books about, which you know would be just as heavy, she was humping muniments about, and somehow her mother could picture that as heavier. So she had more time to read. So I think just the presence of women, I think women, yeah. especially below stairs women, as it were, were dog tired. Yes. And you know, and the rents. I mean, I know like in Largs, this, um, the library usage boomed. It's always been a tiny library in Largs. But you suddenly had all of these naval officers and all of these rents. And there was books in the hotels that, that they'd requisitions and there was Navy books there. But, you know, they, these women, they went and saw a movie. They wanted to see the book. Yeah. accompanied the movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know who the branch librarian was in Largs at that time, but he or she would not have turned down a serving naval officer. No, of course not. Do you know what I mean? If you go in yeah. as a woman in uniform and you say, yeah. I want to see for a grammar, and some wee jumped up guy that hasn't been allowed to serve at all says, no, you can't. I don't think you're going to take it. 
So I think women had a lot more time, literally a lot more time to themselves, where they weren't just doing, and you could take your children to the library. So you weren't being a bad mother. You know, you could say to the kids, come on, let's go to the library, you can get new books. So I think the way you portrayed it in the the book, I think was probably fairly accurate for those kind of average British women. And once you've opened that door, it's open. I think before a lot of women would say to the men, when you get home from work, can you take the kids to the library? Or, you know, they'd say that my my Aunt Betty, she was alive during the war. She was quite old during the war, but still a child. And she can remember going to the library on her own before the war. And then during the war, my my granny went with, because granny wasn't waiting at home for grandpa to come home from the pit for another couple of hours. So everybody went to the library and surely that must have been the same across the country. I must have been. I mean, well, it was, wasn't it? It became a much more female space, which changed the face of it forever. And I love that. And that's why I wanted to plough all that into the wartime library so that people understood that this was a place that women could come, that was safe, that was what where they wanted to be. They could be around other women. They could take out the kind of fiction that they really wanted to read. So I love hearing it through your through your grandmother's eyes, what it meant to them. What was that phrase you said? A something sin. An incipient sin. Is that how she regarded reading? Well, that yeah. was what she called reading. Yeah. <laughs> she always wanted, she would always have mendung to do for herself and then she took in mendung for other people for a little bit of pocket money. And so there was always like, you know, my granny's house always very neatly folded. There was always something productive yeah. to be done. Yeah. Um, but if she'd got to a good part in her book, she would be... And I, and I must admit, as a freelance, that's one of the things that I noticed being a freelance rather than working in a library. If yeah. I get to a good bit of a book, I was slightly late tuning in because I just got to a good bit in my book. I was literally, I think, about four paragraphs away from finishing Shan Hughes's Pearl. And I was like, oh, Kate, mind it. I'm really no, late because I've just listen, finished it. Listen, you're talking to a woman who understands. I'm always the one who lies in bed and my husband's lying there and he's like, will you just turn the light off? And I'm like, just one more page, just one more page. <laughs> You know, he's got insomnia, me, but I can't help it. And I think so many women listening to this will agree. I, I was at an event over the weekend at Chatham Dockyards and the doors opened and this woman just made a beeline for my stall, Leslie. She's a chef. And she said to me, I, I won't say the, the exact word she is, love reading. She said, I am like, she goes, and I love history. She goes, I'm like a sponge. She goes, I just soak it up. She said, I read two or three books a week. And I was like, a week? And she's like, yeah. She goes, I work in a factory. I have to clock on at nine. She goes, I set my alarm early. I get two hours in before I go to work. And then I read when I get back. She just, it was so fascinating to see the way she devoured books and what they meant to her. You know, a lovely woman, Leslie, worked in a, she said, I've got a really boring job in a factory packing. She goes, but books, that's my escape. So Anne, how and where do you read? Anywhere. It's It really is as simple as that. Not all librarians, but there are, I am the stereotypical librarian. I'm very rarely not reading, you know. <laughs> and do you read Kindle or paperback or hardback? Pretty much everything. I read everything okay. from early modern books, you know, literally like first editions of things because I'm lucky enough to get to, you know, work in that field. I listen to audiobooks. I read on my Kindle. I read paperbacks. I read hardbacks. Okay, that's really interesting. And I, um, and I always ask my interviewees three sort of payout questions, if you like. And I find these the most fascinating and sometimes revealing of all. What was your favourite childhood book, if you had to narrow it down to one? Okay, so I was called after Anne of Green Gables. So my mum would like me to say Anne of Green Gables. (laughs) That was her favourite childhood book. 
My favourite childhood book was A Bear Called Paddington by Michael Bond. Oh, of course. Still my favourite book now. If I had, if you oh. said I had my favourite book of all time, it's the first Paddington really? book. I used to make myself marmalade sandwiches. I still love a marmalade sandwich, actually. I haven't had one for ages. Just because of that, I was so obsessed with it. <laughs> What's your favourite library? I can't I can't pick an absolute favourite library to be honest with you and especially if anybody that knows me listened they would be furious the library <laughs> yeah, <that> <laughs> I'm spending most of my time in at the moment are the London library which is just if, if anybody can afford even to buy a day pass for the London library it is worth doing it's just wonderful constantly London library I'm constantly at We've got two boroughs that we're astride, so I'm constantly at the libraries here in Havering. Um, I love watching people. Um, I'm doing a lot of creative writing at the moment, and libraries are good places to look like you're doing something and watch other people. So Havering, and the other one is the Upper Norwood Library in Crystal Palace uh, when, we were, when we were at the flat there. Um, I'm in a lot at the moment. And then um, I also use a lot of the library at West Dean, where I'm doing some okay. studying at the moment. So if you're in Havering Libraries, watch out because you're going to end up in Anne's next book. (laughs) (laughs) I should know the librarians at Havering as well. They're really great. It's such a brilliant library service there. And and if you were sent off to a desert island with only one book, what would it be? So at first I thought this was a really hard question. But then I thought, no, actually I can do it on the stats. So there is only one book, and this is bad. As a Presbyterian, it should be the Bible. But there is only one book that I am never not reading, and that is The Revelations of Divine Love by Julian of Norwich. It was introduced when I was doing my English degree in one of the Middle English classes. We just had a sight unseen exercise, and it was an extract from that. And I just loved the language, didn't know anything about it other than I loved the language. Went into the library, got hold of uh, Grace Warwick's uh, edition of it from the 1920s. And I don't think I don't think a week has passed since that would mean I was seventeen. I don't think a week has passed since I was seventeen that I don't read that particular book. They call them translations, but I find that weird because it's Middle English. It's not it's not foreign language. Um, so I'm looking up here because I have a shelf, and I now do the social media for the friends of Julian of Norwich because I'm that into it and she's the one who said her most famous quote is all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well for the world is full of all manner of things and I just think that in itself if that if only that fragment had survived from her writing that would be enough and she's the first woman that we know who wrote a book in English which is just phenomenal but we don't know anything about her. That's the other thing I love about her. We know that she was an anchorite, and so she attended the funeral for, you know, they had to go through this ceremony where they literally attended their own funeral. And then they were walled in to a cell in the church, and it was the Church of St. Julian in Norwich. I was just in Norwich at the weekend and sort of visited it again. And they've got a reconstructed cell there, so you can see how small a space it is. And she had a window on the world. And of course, Norwich was a big port city. So a lot of the, they think that a lot of the prostitutes and, you know, other people that couldn't go into the church would come. There's a big tradition in Norwich, lots of records. I'm talking about Mother Julian's wisdom. And of course, Marjorie Kemp, the first woman that we know wrote an autobiography in English, visited Julian. So she's a documented person. 
but we don't know who she was, what her birth name was. We don't know. She must have been wealthy. It cost a lot of money to, to be an anchorite. We know very little, just what she told us, um, which is a small amount that 30 years previously she had had this vision and then she spent the rest of her time in that cell contemplating this vision. So I just, the more I know about it, Yelena Ramirez did a fantastic documentary written uh, by Sally Lomas, um, if you're interested, it's worth watching. But for me, and it doesn't matter, and I don't need to read it from cover to cover, which is why I, I have read it cover to cover. It's very short, there's short text and the long text. But I'm never not reading it. Every day, I'll be looking at a passage from it. And it's just fantastic. And not even, I am a religious person, but not just from a religious sense, the way that she uses the language, the cadence yes. that she gives to things the way that she observes things, the, there's a certain bravery as a woman to have written anything down, you know, as a woman to kind of write anything about what they thought Jesus Christ was like in 14th century Norwich right, yeah. in itself is kind of amazing. So if, so whether I'm having a good day, a bad day or an indifferent day, I'm never not reading that book. So that's yeah. the one. I love that answer. I love that this woman from the past is shaping your life today because isn't that as it should be? You know, all our lives are shaped by women from the past. Um, and the fact that you read it every day is amazing. And thank you so much for such a fascinating conversation. You're even more interesting now than when I first interviewed you. I just feel like every time I speak to you, I learn something new. And you, you spark off all different kind of ideas and, and conversations and ideas for books. Just listening to you, I could listen to you all day. I can't you. I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation. If you have any questions or comments about any of the topics raised in our conversation, or perhaps you have a story you'd like to share, then do get in touch via my website, Facebook or Instagram, details of which are all listed on the podcast. Thanks for listening.